0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this is the second. Uh, installment in our ongoing series about, called Entitled Sisters of the Revolution about um, changes and challenges facing Jewish women in modern times and the history of traditional Jewish education for women. And it is sponsored in memory of Yehuda Yosef ben David. And of course, we'll take this opportunity to mention that you can be in touch with me about future future sponsorships in this series or in any other episode and of course uh, for lectures virtual tours and online lectures and live of course uh, when the opportunity arises and the like um before I get into the topic I just want to mention feedback not not part- not particularly about this uh subject but someone just sent me last night and just seemed interesting to share. Um, someone sent me a um, a video, a short little clip of Reb Nata Greenblatt, may he live and be well, um, talking about his Rebbe, Reb Moshe Feinstein, um, and him that in the nineteen early nineteen forties, several years after Reb Meisha had arrived in the United States from Russia, he had considered uh, taking a position as a Russia Shiva. In the Lubavitch yeshiva, in that uh, the Rayats the previous rebbe had established um, in the, his rebuilding the Lubavitch community in Brooklyn, and you know the the the, the interesting thing is is that Ramesh was acquainted with Lubavitch as a rabbi in Russia. If you were a rabbi in Russia, then you knew Lubavitch, especially if you're under the communists. And pretty much in the 1920s and 30s, that was that was who there was. So he definitely uh, had an affiliation not not a personal uh, uh, religious affiliation, a connection, a, a uh, an acquaintance with Lubavitch from his days in Russia. And presumably it was also, uh, you know, financial considerations. He had a family and they were living in New York and MTJ was not the wealthiest institution at the time. And presumably Lubavitch was offering him a much better salary than MTJ was in the 1940s. So just a, a fascinating uh what if of history had Rabbi Feinstein become the leading Rosh Hashiva in Lubavitch? Interesting story. So I guess I'll post it on Twitter and on Jewish History so- Sound by social media, on WhatsApp, so you can check out that story as well. I want to get to the part two of our installments here, Sisters of the Revolution. We're going to discuss uh, Jewish education for women over modern uh, Jewish history. I mentioned in part one um, just at the outset, I mentioned a few of the sources I use. There's obviously many more sources, and if there's a particular one that you're curious about, you can contact me. But I happen to mention that one of the fantastic sources is a uh, book written recently by Dr. Nomi Seidman about the Shlarsh and the Beis Yaakov movement, which we're going to discuss uh, in depth uh, further on in this series. And I thought I made it clear that I made use of her book as a source, seen from the feedback that I got that it wasn't so clear, and I was not trying to hide the fact that I was using it as a source. So here I am saying it again, and just to clear that up. Um, last time we discussed the challenges facing the Jewish people in general in the modern era, um, and the changing times, and Jewish women in particular with the advent of all these you know uh, changes that we discussed in the previous episode the new exposure which lessened the commitment to traditional jewish life of many of them Um, there are also many social challenges specifically facing women problems that were so severe and that were so uh, uncomfortable to talk about that many in the jewish community at the time did not want to discuss it openly and neither will we on this podcast suffice it to say that jewish women In many ways, we're facing a crisis at many levels at the turn of the century. And therefore, in this coming installment, we'll discuss some of the pioneering solutions in the realm of education that were supposed to solve many of the issues facing Jewish women at that time. So there's the the overall context is the idea that there was no formal education for girls in the Jewish world, in the traditional Jewish world, until the modern era and there's this myth uh, that that um that i guess many of us grew up with that that the reason it was so is that the child that the jewish girls were educated at home they were educated by their parents i it's it's a myth as far as the use of the word educated is it's if they if you want to say they absorbed some sort of atmosphere of jewish life or culture of jewish life uh from their home from their parents that's Probably correct that's not a myth if you would say educated it was no not, not not educated by any uh, by any definition of the word they had a very very basic knowledge it was more a cultural atmosphere um, they're mostly illiterate uh, they did not know how to read or or um or use the Hebrew language of davening of of, of svarim of anything uh, or to write um. They weren't actually taught anything, especially not in any systematic form. At best, they could read a little Yiddish. Um, and there were some books that were popular at the time that were used by women, but there was never really any uh, investment in their education um, in that sense. Um, the first attempt at educating Jewish women uh, in a traditional sense comes from none other than Urb Shamsch Hirsch in Frankfurt, and he's probably the first, and before he's thirty years old, when he's about twenty nine years old he publishes his monumental work first he publishes nineteen letters, which was written after the horeb the horeb the Horeb, but he wrote, wrote as the horeb he um he 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 writes the horeb first, and then because his his non jewish publisher feels that it's not gonna sell very well so he he ha- suggests that he write an introduction and try to use that as a marketing ploy. So he wrote the 19 letters and then published that and then published the Choreb. And so the reason why we have the 19 letters today is because of a non-Jewish German publisher. Um and 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 in, in the Horeb, which he writes when he's 29, um, when he finishes writing when he's 29 years old, a young rabbi, he dedicates on the title page, he dedicates it to the young thinking Jewish men and women. And women. Which is a novelty at the time that he's writing this, uh, rather sophisticated book for young Jewish men and women. Um, there had been books, Sfarim, written for women, mainly, uh, Musar and stories, Midrashim, you know, Hasidic stories also, even though they were specifically targeting women, uh, mainly in Yiddish. As, as I said, most women were illiterate, um, as far as Hebrew was concerned. In fact, uh, Shmuel Abba wrote, I think I mentioned this uh, at least one other time in another episode, when he was writing about the Hasidic movement, he felt that, uh, that the Hasidic movement, in his, in his rather skewed view of things, he, he, uh, he felt the Hasidic movement opened new opportunity for the Jewish woman, and he listed a whole bunch of reasons for it, and one of them was that there was literature written for women. That wasn't exactly written for them, but there was the certain access that they had. Um, Chavetz Chaim, who I'm going to speak about soon, himself wrote two sfarim, uh, specifically geared towards women. And he, ad- he also addressed a female crowd in the great synagogue in Vilna. He spoke to them about Tyrus Amishpoch. I think I mentioned that in one of the episodes about the Chavetz Chaim, um, a while back. But here in Horib, the al Shavol Hershey went on to describe his educational philosophy. And he emphasizes that the curriculum of his educational philosophy is for girls as well as boys, and with some minor modifications. And this included formal education in Torah subjects for girls. That was his plan. Not only was it his plan, but he actually implemented it as uh, as his plan when he um, when he eventually opened the, his 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 real school, his his school in Frankfurt. Now when he published the it's 80 years before Beis Yaakov opens. Um, And then in 1853, which is less than 20 years later, 15 years later, again, many, many decades before um, Jewish education is available for girls in Eastern Europe. So his real shul opens up for boys and girls. 83 students for boys and girls. And they learn Torah subjects. And they learn the same subjects as the boys, aside from two. Which two? Gemara, girls in the real school did not study Gemara and math. So Rav Shem felt that math was not for girls either. Go figure. So, Gemara and math is only for boys. I don't know if the girls complained too much about uh, not having the math. I definitely would not have complained if I did not have to do math. And he explained that we need to connect them to their spiritual sources. Again, it was a seemingly a justification due to modern times, but though he does seem to make it sound that it was a preferred method, even not as a result of the modern era, which is a debate in general about the philosophy of Ravshan to follow, which I'm not going to get into uh, right now. Um, he wrote in a letter that the goal is to have to have them, the girls, our daughters, he calls them, prefer on their own, and I quote, who should they prefer on their own? I'm quoting Yeshaya, Hanavi, and Amois. Prefer them to Goethe and Shakespeare. If you wish to provide for your future, do not forget your daughters. End quote. So he wants the idea, the goal is that they should prefer Yeshaya and Amos to, those are Nevi'im, by the way, for any of the male listeners, and they, and they, um, and to prefer to Goethe and Shakespeare. So the idea is that uh, there should be an organiz- organized institutional orthodox education for girls and it begins in Frankfurt in the 1850s by Hirsch. it's on the map it exists and therefore in the resulting decades and afterwards the Frankfurt women were very learned very knowledgeable in Jewish subjects they're also very pious very religious and many and generations of women uh, elderly young even girls and and middle-aged women went to shul every Shabbos in Frankfurt, and they would daven from a sitter, and they and he. also opened a high school for girls, one of the four institutions. And then as part of the real shul, he had he had the real shul, the elementary school. And then he had a high school for girls. He had a yeshiva which he opened also for older boys, and then he also had a school that he opened for the ausjuden who didn't quite, the Eastern European Jews who were coming to Frankfurt, who didn't quite fit into any of his other institutions. So it did pop up in other places in, in Germany in the un, in, in ensuing decades. So it did have an influence. And it was to have an influence later on Bisakov as well. Um, now, of course, the, throughout the generations, there are individual girls who get an education. Um, it's not institutionalized. There's the wealthy families hire private tutors for their daughters to have them taught. And they're taught Jewish subjects and Halacha and Chomish and Tanach and all kinds of things. Sometimes if there's super intelligent uh, girls or daughters of rabbis, uh, daughters of, of 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 Talmudical scholars, Talmudic scholars, they they also ended up being learned, scholarly or knowledgeable uh, girls, daughters. And some of them became legendary uh, and some of them became famous Rebetzins afterwards. The of Mitziv is one famous example. Um... But their story, all these stories throughout history, their story of getting an education and becoming knowledgeable in Jewish subjects. And Torah subjects was obviously the exception which proved the rule that overall there was no institutionalized framework or infrastructure that provided that education for the overall female Jewish population in the traditional Jewish community. In addition to that, there was, and you have to mention this as well, at different points in history, and it's possibly even as early as the 16th and 17th centuries, hundreds of years before that, in the Polish kingdom, the Polish commonwealth, there was what seems to be called in the sources that I saw, cheders for girls. In fact, I used to doubt, you know, it just sounded funny to even call it a cheder for girls. And uh, I once actually heard it live in an interview I conducted for a Holocaust survivor about a year ago. Um, And she I asked her where she went to school and she mentioned that she went to the local public school like everyone else. But she also attended, I think it was either in the summers or in the afternoons or both. I don't remember exactly the details. She attended a cheder for girls and her shtetl in Galicia. So, so it existed down to modern times. And in, in, these cheder for girls, there was some sort of framework. It was some, they studied some subjects, some Torah subjects. The concept existed for a while. It was not institutionalized. It was not that common, it was not that widespread, not 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 very many uh, girls, Jewish girls attended these, but it existed, the idea exists. Now, of course, there's also a halachic status and a dispute about that halachic status, which, of course, I'm not going to get into, and you can ask people knowledgeable in Torah subjects, which I'm not, and people who know halacha, which I'm not, and there's a whole dispute about whether there's a... It's permissible. It just comes into the historical context because that was one of the reasons that it wasn't, didn't exist until that point. And that also plays a role in history in modern times because of the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim, in, in, who wrote tons and loads of svarim, and perhaps we can uh, discuss his many writings at, at another opportunity, but one of them was a sefer called Likute Halachas. And in the Likutei Halachas on, on the Masechta of Saita, which was published in nineteen eleven again nineteen eleven is about six years before any Yaakov opened before there's any formal Jewish education, and in there he he gives what's now become to be known as his famous Heter his, permi- his permits uh, uh, teaching Torah to girls. Why? because of the changing times does that mean? That the Chavetz Chaim was reformed because the times changed, the Lacha changes. No, that does not mean that. And we have any anyone who knows a little bit about the Chavetz Chaim knows how very much uh, um, conservative he was, and uh, not conservative, and as, as 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 opposed to reform, but conservative in his views, um, and definitely was not uh, coming to to uh, become a liberal or a feminist. The idea was that that uh, first of all. Let's give the context. It's written as a footnote. It's not he didn't put it out as a public proclamation. He didn't give it as a speech. It was a footnote in a sefer halacha on a mesecta and shas, um, in a you know a scholarly work. Um, and really, it was it was more about it was more about the state of Torah and Torah study and Yiddishkeit and traditional Jewish life during the changing times than it was about women. Um, in, in fact, in, in, a, in a different sefer. He he even blamed the women for part of being part of the problems of the modern times. He blamed them for pursuing a luxurious lifestyle, and because of that, their husbands had to work harder and make more money because they wanted all kinds of luxuries. Is what he writes. And he also even blames women for the terrible sin of the immigration to the United States. The Chavetz Chaim lived through the Great Immigration. He wrote books about the Great Immigration. And uh, he decried the great immigration. He felt that it was a weakening traditional Jewish life, which it was. And he, and he, he said part of, the, he lists a whole bunch of reasons. One of them is, is the women. So they want more money. They heard that in America, the streets are paved with gold. Their husbands can make money. They send them to America so that they'll send back money to them and eventually bring them to America also. So he, he was also anti women voting, both in Poland and in Israel. And in other places, and he signed the proclamations with, along with many other rabbis uh, against uh, women voting or being elected to any public position, so in theory uh the he's going ahead and 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 reflecting on what's happening uh what's happening uh It's a big insight into history in fact, to read that footnote of his because he's describing what goes on in the world around him, and he says it used to be that they absorb the Yiddishkeit and the Torah lifestyle from their parents' home. But today there's a lot of outside influences. And very often he speaks, he 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 uh, he, uh, he describes how very often Jewish girls today do not l- reside in their parents' home altogether. And there's this distance, uh, both culturally and physically, from their parents' home and lifestyle. And therefore we're faced with a big problem. There is this uh, abandoning of Jewish life. And therefore, we have to teach them Torah. We have to teach them Torah subjects, since Sfarim, and he lists a whole bunch of Sfarim we should teach them. And in theory, it's a it's a heter. He's writing it as a, as a, a, there's no more of this, uh, you know, iser. This it's not really forbidden anymore. He even says that some of their study of Torah for women should now be considered a great mitzvah. Presumably, other learning is of other Sfarim that he doesn't mention is either not a mitzvah. And it's just permitted, or maybe it's still on the other uh, 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 prohibition, the previous prohibition. I don't know, and and I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who have strong opinions about this. So I'm not going to state any. So, but that's what he says. So he says that uh, that, that, that therefore there's this prohibition no longer exists, at least in a limited context. You now, in that context, it's worth mentioning the changing role of women, in in in, in what's happening at that time. Not in the Hasidic world in general, but in the specific court of, of, uh, of Chabad, Lubavitch. And for similar reasons, utilizing them, the women, as a force of tradition against the sweeping changes of modernity. It starts a little bit by the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, but much more by the Rayats, the previous Rebbe, and then, and then, of course, even more so by the last Rebbe. And this was not really about formal education. That wasn't the subject, although that came up much later. And it's more related to another very monumental question and topic in the history of the Hasidic movement, which is, are women considered Hasidim, or more correctly, Hasidois as well, or are they just the husband of, daughter of, or from a family of Hasidim? And that's a different question for another time, and here they become more incorporated into the Hasidic court to become considered Hasidim on, on their own. In this and then, and then the last the last uh, topic I want to explore in this at this stage is uh, what's going on outside the traditional Jewish world, and how are uh, Jewish girls being integrated into Jewish education outside the excuse me excuse me the normal framework or the traditional framework not normal the traditional framework of uh, Jewish education. We have in the latter part of the nineteenth century a new type of school arises on the horizon. Last uh, episode, we focused a lot on Galicia, on Austria-Hungary, on the public school system, on the on the uh, compulsory education law. In Russia, it comes in much later stages. But what does spring up from the grassroots is the cheder metukon, the fixed or the upgraded or the progressive or whatever, how you want to translate it, cheder. And that's, of course, influenced by the Haskalah movement, the Jewish Enlightenment in Russia. And it's also influenced by the Chodovay Zion, the Lovers of Zion movement in Russia at the end of the 19th century. And this, uh, these, it's to improve the existing infrastructure of the Cheder, which was very, uh, in need of improvement. And pretty much everyone agreed that it was in need of improvement. The question is in which direction to improve it. And, um, and the Cheder Matukan had, you know, it, it 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 brought ideas of nationalism in and and uh, and Jewish nationalism, which was an idea on the rise and very prominent in the Chovevei in the last decades of the nineteenth century. And it was a Jewish school, and it added different subjects, and it 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 changed a lot of the what was going on in the cheder up until that point. Now, because it, it it promulgated Jewish identity and nationalism, and it was Jewish schools, the Tsar and his government did not like it, and they were opposed to it, which caused them to a lot of problems. Why? Because they wanted them to integrate into Russian schools. They wanted them to attend Russian schools and not and not promote ideas of, God forbid, of Jewish nationalism and uniqueness and, and stuff like that. So the other ones who opposed them were the conservative elements within the traditional Jewish community. They wanted them... They did not like the new haters. And they saw it as a tool of the Haskalah of the Enlightenment. And of bringing secular studies and all kinds of other terrible changes into the Cheder system, into the traditional Jewish educational system. In fact, the old Ashkenazic pronunciation was still used then. The Cheder Matukan did not use modern Hebrew. And they, in fact, most, most of the Cheder Matukan still used Yiddish. The Hebrew schools only came a generation later. But even, even any Hebrew that they did use, it was still used with the old Ashkenazic pronunciation. So it was called the Cheder Mesuken. So the opponents within the Jewish community said, Ah, it's a cheder mesukon. It's not with a suf, it's a samach. It's a dangerous cheder. And therefore you should never send your kids and your children to this type of cheder. Among the many other changes they did in these schools, which is really a topic for another time, but one of them was that many of them had girls' programs. Either co-ed, which was the real cheder mesukons, or even separate, but they offered education for girls. So that means there's Jewish girls' education, not just last time we discussed the public schools. And here we're still in the end of that 19th century in Russia, in the Pale of Settlement, in where it's the most traditional Jewish life. And to put things in perspective by how widespread this was, by 1903, that's the turn of the century, there's close to a thousand cheder matukans in Russia. Not all of them had girls' programs, but many of them did. Now if we go further, this is also during the time of the Great Immigration. The immigrants to the United States obviously sent their daughters to public school, their girls to public school. In Part 1, we discussed how most girls and boys in Austria-Hungary and Galicia and Hungary in those places went to public school as well. A generation later, the Cheder Metukon back in Russia, and by now it's, also, it's a generation later, it's after the World War I, so it's already Poland, it's the interwar period. There's the Jewish school systems, the Tarbut of the Zionists. Zionists, there's the Tsisha of the Yiddishists, which was mainly the Bund, but also Paul Tzion, small, the leftist uh, Paul Zion and the folks party, the, the Yiddishist movements had the Tzisha uh, uh, school system, which also had thousands of students. Now those two, the Tarbut and the Bund, the Yiddishist schools, they were co-ed. So the girls went to school also. And that was mostly in the interwar period. So the, the, the girls are getting an education. They're getting a form of a Jewish education. It's completely secular. Um, the Yiddish schools were, were even anti-religious. The Tarbut schools, it's debatable. Um, also a topic for another time. But they're definitely irreligious. They're definitely secular. They're giving a different type of Jewish education, but it wasn't public schools. So it was all these different options for girls already to attend schools. There was exclusively Jewish uh, girls schools there was the, one of the more famous ones was the Yehudia school in Warsaw it was for upper upper class uh, families It was rich wealthy families sent their girls there was Zionists, and it was an only girls high school in Warsaw it was like one of the you know one of the most elite uh, schools of high quality education in fact the one who taught Jewish history at the Yehudia School in the interwar period was none other than Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum um, uh, of the uh, later famous of the Warsaw Ghetto and the and the Einig Shabbos Archive. So that, you know that was one of his only steady sources of income, and it's hard to imagine the Yiddishist, Paul you know, almost borderline Marxist uh, Ringelblum teaching at a school that's such an exclusive, rich uh, uh, for rich girls and Zionists. But that's how it works. That's, that's when you need a parnassa. That's what you do. Either way, so, so there's, there's also, I mentioned in part one, Catholic schools that are also only for girls, which sometimes Hasidic families would prefer to send their girls to because at least they would be separate only with girls. So at this point, we freeze the moment. In the early 1900s, we're talking about that in, 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 in the, in the non-Jewish world, public school education is common, and most Jews are sending their girls, and very often their boys too, to public school, so girls are getting already a formal institutionalized education. Within the Jewish world, we have all kinds of Jewish streams of education, the Cheder Matukan, and later on the Tarbut, and the Bund, and the Yiddishists, and even exclusively Jewish, uh, exclusively girls' schools, where the girls are getting a formal institutionalized education. We have a situation where, because of all the changes, because of everything going on, there are rabbis like the Chavitz Chaim, who say that it, not only is it not forbidden any longer to teach Torah to girls, but it may be even a great mitzvah. And then we have, within the traditional Jewish world, by already half a century earlier and more, Rabbi Rav of Shunafol Hirsch, which had already spread in isolated places across Europe, not only in Frankfurt, That there was strictly orthodox strictly you know good torah education available for girls if we take that all into context we'll be able to understand how in the next stage you know at this point it's only the eastern european religious jews religious jews who are lagging behind if we think about it by the way in general in the modern era the conservative elements within probably any society but for sure in jewish society the the many very often the 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 uh, you know the certain ideas or uh, uh, programs that are opposed it just takes it's just a matter of time before it's incorporated into the system, uh, and, and and that's that's the nature of things and that's how it has gone throughout history so it's 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 just a familiar concept, so it's the same thing with this it's just a matter of time, it's it's not a revolution that that's completely uh, out of the blue. It's just a matter of time because it's happening all around. And that will lead us of course uh, um, into the next stage. Um, but I just would, would like to end off with one last point, is that during World War I, the old time cheder system for boys, and Jewish education for boys, collapses. The entire Jewish educational infrastructure collapses as a result of World War I, as of the mayhem, as of the destruction, and as of the re- borders, the, the new republics that rise up, and the compromises to modernity are necessary after World War One just because it's a new reality. And that's as far as boys' education is concerned. And there's all of a sudden secular studies in boys' chadarim in, uh, in the post-World War I world in Poland and in the Hasidic communities and all types of places with the backing of people like the Garaba And uh, so the modifications in boys' chinech, which led to open the door also for similar things to happen to girls' education as well. So the stage is, is pretty much set. So that's uh, part two of Sisters in the Revo- of the Revolution. And we'll continue, of course, with the next part uh, in two weeks. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, common sources, sponsorships, and lectures and tours. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites and Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at @Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.